Welcome back to our study of the book of Hebrews. We're so glad that you could join us for this um, this Bible study of what I think is a very important book. I think it helps us to understand the Old Testament from the New Testament perspective, and it helps us to understand the New Testament from an Old Testament perspective. So a very, very important uh, book, a very important letter that, that we see here in Hebrews. Um, it's been a couple of weeks since we've, we've had a study uh, in this book. I've been out with COVID, so if you've been watching, keeping up with these live as we put them out, there's been a bit of a break here, so we're glad you're back. If you're watching them after the fact, you won't know any different, so uh, that's fine. Um, we, we covered the first two chapters, and we see that this is uh, an argument being made. A, a lot of letters really are, especially Paul's letters, and, and we don't know the authorship of Hebrews definitively. Um, I almost certainly don't think it's Paul. Um, could be Apollos. It could be Barnabas. Um, some think it could be Priscilla. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot of possibilities. It really doesn't matter. The point is it was probably a sermon. It was probably an oratory that was delivered and then written down and passed around amongst, amongst the churches. Many of the letters ended up being like that. And authorship is uncertain on far more of the Bible than we realize. The point is that a case is being made. A case is being made to Jewish Christians, primarily, who have accepted Christ but have not yet allowed that to change the way that they practice their faith. And they needed to be walked through the process of understanding who Jesus is and how he changes things, how he uh, manifests in this new covenant uh, a change of an approach to the law. So we look at, at chapter 1, and we're introduced to the theme that Jesus and the Christian age is better. It's better than, um, than the old law, than, than the, previous, the Mosaic age, right? So we're introduced to this theme, Jesus is better. And we start out with Jesus is better than the angels. Remember, Jewish people worshipped angels. They considered them to be high and authoritative, and they worshipped them um, as, as quasi-deity. And the writer is saying Jesus is, is greater. Don't worship angels anymore. Jesus is better. Now, for a little while, he came down and was lower, but he did that so he could bring us up to be greater as well. Even we will one day be greater than the angels because of Jesus, because the angels don't have access to eternal life the way we do. Uh, they can be cast out, but our salvation is secure through Christ. And then we move to chapter 2, and, and, and there's, um, there, there's some talk there about us and our place in this whole grand scheme. And then we move to chapter 3, where we'll, we'll, we'll focus today. Um, chapter 3 is where we begin to go point by point through the, the elements of the old law for the author or the speaker to discuss why Jesus is better, why Jesus is an improvement upon that. And what you'll eventually see is that if you, took, if you looked at the old law, okay, or, or Jewish faith, and you took point by point the elements of that, you have things like high priests, you have law, you have sacrifice, you, you have all of that. If you go point by point, Jesus fills and checks that box right? And he does it in a superior way to the old law. What we'll begin to see is a concept emerge that the old law had a purpose for a time. That purpose was to help God's people survive until Jesus could come and deliver Jesus to the world. The other purpose of it, of the old law, was to introduce concepts to people to prepare their minds and their hearts for the coming of Christ. 
centuries of understanding the concept of sacrifice, centuries of understanding the concept of a high priest and of how we interact with God, all of that culminating at the cross, it is essential that we today and they then understand how Jesus is an improvement on that. We're not throwing out the old law, at least not the concepts. The concepts of the old law remain intact, but the practice has been done away with because Jesus has perfectly served to complete the purpose of that old law, and therefore we live in something better. So let's look at chapter 3. Remember, he's talked, and and there's been some foreshadowing here in chapter 2 about Jesus as a high priest, and he talks about how Jesus is more than a man, but he's also a man, and so he's able to stand between us and God when we suffer with sin and suffer with temptation and able to say to God, I know what it's like down there. Here's what they're dealing with, right, and speak on our behalf. So he's able to be that payment for debt. He's able to be that which overcomes our sin because he's experienced it. It says in in verse 18 of chapter 2, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He understands humanity because he was one of us, but he understands God because he's God, okay? That foreshadows that he's an improvement on the intermediary structure of the high priest and the priesthood. The priests were the intermediaries. That worked on some level because they're human. They understand sin, but it doesn't work on another level because they're human and they themselves are flawed. We'll get to that in a few chapters, but make a note of it. Stick a post-it up for that. In chapter 3, though, he continues from there. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Um, Oh, excuse me. I skipped a little bit there. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here, Jesus is called a high priest. He's also called an apostle, which is interesting. Um, When we think of the apostles, we think of the 12. And if you're you're, uh, sharp enough, you think of 13 because Judas ended his life and was replaced by Matthias. So they could have 12. But there are four other people in Scripture referred to as apostles uh, directly. Jesus is one of them. Barnabas is another in the book of Acts, I think chapter 14. Not sure about that. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is called an apostle as well. Um, And then you have Paul, who is referred to as an apostle. So there's actually 17 people named apostles in Scripture. Jesus, interestingly enough, is one of them. And what is an apostle? It's one who is sent one who is sent on a special mission, one who's been given a directive, all right? So Jesus certainly was that. The apostle and high priest of our confession, verse 2, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house, in all of God's house. Okay, so now we're beginning to draw the comparison to Moses. And here this person is going to make the case that Jesus, so he's better than the angels, right? Um, and he is better than Moses as a lawgiver. Moses is held up as the epitome of the law. Remember the transfiguration? We see um, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. What did Jesus say about the greatest commandment? Uh, Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang or pivot or hinge on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets come down to love. 
Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophet. So that was representative for them of the epitome of the Old Testament. And here he's going to make the comparison. Moses, so, so Jesus is faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in God's house, uh, one who was appointed as well. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Uh, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So what is this about the builder has more honor than the house? Well, um, we today in Western culture take great pride in our dwellings, and they're built to a level that it far exceeds what would have been understood in the first century. But because um, a house was just a house, it was very utilitarian. Um, and the one who built it, the stonemason, um, and by the way, Jesus, we call him a carpenter or the son of a carpenter. Uh, Joseph, we call a carpenter, and of course Jesus perhaps worked in that field. But carpentry, is uh, that's not a real accurate or precise translation uh, of how that's referred to in Scripture. Uh, it would be more what we would call a stone cutter or a stonemason. Okay? So they made bricks. They were brickmakers. Um, they built homes, perhaps. Uh, interesting that that illustration is used here, I think. Um, but where we live in uh, southern or southwestern Wisconsin, it's a very important place in the world um, when it comes to architecture because there was uh, probably the greatest American architect, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, grew up not far from here, lived not far from here, uh, and built many homes in Madison, Milwaukee areas, and Chicago, and, and places outside of there. Uh, of course, other places in the country too, but uh, my wife is an interior designer, and she loves architecture, and she's a big fan of Frank Lloyd Wright. And so when we moved here, we took advantage of that. And we've been to two or three different Frank Lloyd Wright homes and taken a look at them. And she's seen several of, of her own uh, when she was in school, the trips to Chicago, which is not far from us. Um, no one really talks about the houses themselves. I mean, you can look them up and you can you can see see them and they're pretty, they're, they're amazing as far as architecture goes. People can appreciate that. I'm not one of those people. That's not my area. But... Um, what makes them special is because of who designed them, right, and who oversaw their construction, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. In the same way, the writer says that the house isn't really as important as the one who built it. And God built the house. God built everything. Uh, for every house, verse 4, is built by someone, and the builder of all things is God. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Moses was a servant of God, and he was faithful in everything God asked him to do. Now, is that contradictory? Because Moses died before entering the promised land in part because he didn't do what God said. Does that mean that this is not telling the truth or this is contradictory? No. In general, Moses was faithful. He made a mistake, and it cost him dearly. And there are consequences for our actions. But Moses was faithful as a lawgiver and as the leader of God's people. So he was uh, faithful in all things as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. All right, back up. Got to back up. 
Moses was faithful in all things as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken later. It means Moses was not, his life and the things he said and did were not just beneficial for that time. Moses, in part, the, his purpose as the leader of the Israelites, as the lawgiver, was to be something that they could understand Jesus through. All right? By looking at Moses as a lawgiver and as a leader, the people could better understand the role that a lawgiver and a leader would, would fill in their faith. So Moses was useful and he was faithful as a servant and as to demonstrate what was to come. Jesus was that which was to come, and he was faithful as a son. And the son is superior to the servant. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He comes home just asking for a job. He says, I don't care about being in the family anymore. I just want a job. And the father says, oh, no, no, no. You're a son. You're not going to be a servant. They would have understood that that was different. So Moses is faithful as a servant, and he was definitely faithful. But it was only important so far as it was to serve the purpose of the time and to help them see who Jesus was or was going to be. So Jesus is the son, and he is over the house, and we are the house. We are what God has built and we continue to be that house and to dwell in that house if we continue to hold firm, to continue the course, to be faithful. Verse 7, and we're going to get into quoting some Old Testament here, which the author does a lot because it's important. It's important and we understand the New Testament better when we understand the Old Testament and vice versa. So here we go. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and they saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that they not be in uh, that there not be in any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. What does that mean, as long as it's still called today? Well, every day is today. Tomorrow will be today, and today will be yesterday. You with me? As long as it's called today, as long as you're alive, as long as you wake up in the morning, then you need to be faithful. Don't have an unbelieving heart. Work at it. It doesn't just happen. You've got to train yourself. You've got to discipline yourself. You've got to work every day to continue in faithfulness and continue in obedience. So see to it that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We're partakers. We are participants in Christ. Remember when we're baptized? We are baptized into death, right? We, we are raised, we read the book of Romans, it's, it's rich with that imagery, that we partake, we engage with Jesus in what he did. Verse 15, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Ah, so now he draws a comparison as we close this chapter. It's going to lead to the next step. We're building a case. Jesus is better than the angels, right? Um, Jesus brings us into union with God. Jesus is better than Moses as a lawgiver. And then he says, we saw the people that followed Moses. Some of them were killed in the desert because of their lack of faithfulness, because of their unbelief. So you need to be careful. Do not fall away. He's building the case. You need to accept Jesus as being better so that you can continue in your faithfulness and not be cast aside, not miss out. And that's going to lead into a discussion about the promised land. Because those who didn't enter didn't get to taste of the rest, the Sabbath rest that God had planned for his people. And we as Christians are promised a land, a rest, a Sabbath from this world. And we get there by following the lawgiver. Just as those who reached the promised land followed Moses and were faithful to get there, we too will follow Christ who is superior to get to a promised land which is superior. And after that, we're going to get into the meat of how Jesus makes that possible. He's better. Just remember that. And we'll see you next time.